Hey guys, um, just before we get into the episode, just want to put a disclaimer out there that as always, this information is, into, is for information purposes only um, and is not intended to treat, diagnose, prevent or cure any kind of condition. Um, so please consult with your healthcare professional before making any changes to your current lifestyle or implementing anything you hear in this podcast. Um, big shout out to Ralph for coming back on. Um, you guys are absolute force to be reckoned with in the functional medicine world. His knowledge is amazing. Um, and how, how forthcoming he is with it as well is incredibly, incredibly generous. Um, so we're lucky to have him on. Um, <clears throat> if you enjoy the episode, please feel free to leave a rating review on iTunes. You know, the, the, the more we get on there, the higher we climb the ranks, the, the bigger the following we get, the more episodes like this we're able to bring you guys um, and more awesome people we're able to get on. So please, please lend the support. It's greatly appreciated. Um, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi guys, welcome back to the Muscle Medals Podcast, uh, guest interview number nine. Um, we are not joined by Cal today, it's just myself, uh, but we do have the honour of welcoming back Dr. Ralph Esposito um, after last, last what, two weeks ago we had that epic podcast with them um, going through testosterone mm. um, and a lot of the kind of ramifications regard, like surrounding that hormone and, and the use, uh, you know, you, what happens when we start playing around with that in a you know exogenous way and and then what what it's doing from an endogenous standpoint as well um so, but you know today we we're bringing Ralph back on to basically talk about some of the um ways we'd look at measuring hormonal function in the body and, and kind of looking as to how how to optimize that and then we were going to talk about estrogen and and some of the roles with regards to the liver in, in this whole process and, and detoxification pathways but anyway um how are we doing ralph um good to have you back hey man thanks for having me i know we we finished the last podcast and i was like dude we have to talk about a lot of other things we just don't have five hours so we did a part two we split it up mm. Mm. i'm excited to, to get really nitty and gritty into all this stuff mm. I know it's, this, this is going to be a cool, a juicy podcast as well. Um, so I reckon we'll, we'll dive right in. Um, cause I, like the, the, the way Ralph and I actually, um, came across one another was, um, myself reaching out to Ralph about helping with, a um, interpreting a, uh, a Dutch test. Um, but the, and, and so I, that kind of led, led me down this, this route of planning these podcasts because it was such a valuable consultation, um, but I thought we'd basically get Ralph's view because this is what Ralph does um, as a as an integrative um, health practitioner. Um, you know, he he basically makes you know come interprets this stuff and comes at it with the from a natural perspective of getting these these levels back in a range that are you know what we'd regard as optimal. Um, but um, so I mean, where where do we start with that? I mean, would we? when you're looking at testing for someone's um, you know, testosterone levels, estrogen levels, general hormonal function, what, what are the sort of things you, you'll go down? Right. So <clears throat> when you look at hormone levels, the best way to approach it, and this is my opinion, but I've found it to be most effective in terms of um, patient outcomes is you have to get blood work. You need serum levels or plasma levels of your your hormones. So number one, that has to be done, but I'd like to supplement it with the Dutch test. Dutch test is a dried urinary hormone test. Um, the, the lab is called precision analytical, um, no affiliation. I have no, um, financial, um, connections with them. I, I genuinely love their test. I, I think it gives you the most complete, um, approach or view of hormones. So when you have to test somebody's a male's hormones and even in, in women, actually I find this test to be even more effective in women. Um, the so the test, yeah, the Dutch test, <clears throat> the Dutch test is even more effective in women because men's estrogen levels typically are lower relative to women and the Dutch test. Well, let me give you an example of what the Dutch test is. The Dutch test is a dried urinary hormone test. You basically urinate, on these strips 
four times a day, sometimes five times a day, and it measures your cortisol, your cortisone, your cortisol and cortisone metabolites, and um, all of your sex hormone metabolites in your urine. But why does that matter? Why do we want to know that? Well, we'll probably get into this a little bit later because your hormones, the ones that we're testing in your blood through lab work are either free or bound levels, like, you know, free or total testosterone, estrogen, DHEA. Um, cortisol is completely useless in the blood. I know a bunch of doctors who test cortisol and like, oh yeah, your cortisol is fine or your cortisol is high. I'm like, okay, well, you're testing total cortisol. You have no idea what that's doing at one particular point in time. Like I could test you, I could say, hey, but I'm going to test your cortisol levels. And then, you know, five minutes before you just got off the phone with, you know, your boss and he's like, I need you to do X, X, Y, and Z by 5 p.m. Your cortisol is going to spike. Like, so it's going to show up in your blood. So it's an inaccurate marker in your blood test. But in the Dutch test, you collect it over four periods of time and you get a waking sample two hours after uh, a PM afternoon sample and then a nighttime sample. Well, people will say, well, you can do that with saliva too. I'm sure. Are you familiar with the saliva cortisol tests? Yeah. 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 Right. And people say, oh, you should just do it with saliva because it's much easier and you get, you know, the free cortisol, free cortisol levels. But actually in the saliva test, you don't get the metabolites of cortisol, right? So this is where we get into this big issue of adrenal fatigue, which does not exist. Mm. It's a great, it's a great explanation for something that doctors are seeing or physicians are seeing, but your adrenal glands do not get fatigued. They do not get atrophic. They do not non-function because that's called Addison's and that's a, that's a pathological disease. But the Dutch test will test all of these metabolites. So you can say, well, your cortisol is low, but where is it going? Mm. Is it going to the metabolites for cortisone? Is it going to the metabolites for cortisol? Is it, <clears throat> is it being converted just to cortisol, like a cortisone? So you have a, an idea of where these pathways are going. Like this is really functional medicine. That is naturopathic medicine mm. at its core because you need to assess it as a whole. Mm. So that's, I'm going to come back to why that's important because I know a lot of your listeners are like, well, what does that have to do with testosterone and estrogen? Yeah. I'll get back to that in a second. The other things that it'll test, it'll test your uh, testosterone levels in your urine. And this is the glucuronide of your testosterone. So it's the metabolite of testosterone. So a free testosterone, which is really important because it'll tell you, you make 800 uh, nanograms per deciliter of testosterone can convert it, right? And you have a free level of, let's say 10. What is your body doing with getting rid of that? Mm. Right. And it gives you another idea of what your body, how your body's metabolizing uh, testosterone. And then it'll look at your estrogens. So we look at estradiol in the blood and we'll say, oh, high estradiol levels are bad. Yes, that is true. But there's three different types of mother estrogens. There's estrone, estriol, and estradiol. And then there's three types of I call them child or, or metabolites of the mother hormones, of the mother estrogen. There's 2-hydroxyestrone, 4-hydroxyestrone, and 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone, right? Mm. That's a, it's, it's a lot to follow. So I understand. I'm going to make this very simple. Two good, four bad. Mm. Very, very simple. And the reason why is because the four metabolites, they bind to estrogen receptors more um, avidly. They're more... Yeah. They have a higher affinity for the estrogen receptors. So when you tell me, oh, my estradiol is high, my first question, especially in women, I'm saying, okay, well, where is it going? Mm. Right? Is it going to the four? Because if it's going to the four, that's, that's a significant risk factor for uh, breast cancer, for ovarian cancer, and prostate cancer in men. Mm. So, you, so when you get the blood levels and you compare it with the Dutch levels, your, your hormone metabolites, then you have a more comprehensive view of how can we manipulate this a little bit better? Because just by saying, oh, we need to shut down your estrogen, we need to increase your testosterone, we need to repair your adrenal glands, where do you start? What do you look at? What enzymes are you trying to manipulate? And um, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of doctors are looking at it that way. Mm. Mm. It is, is, I think um, the estrogen side of things is awesome. I mean, we may as well go into that now. Um, because I think estrogen's a funny one, and uh, where it seems like when you when you look at how estrogen is dealt with in the body, um, 
in the fact that you know relative to other these other steroid hormones you, you know we don't need seem to need as higher levels of estrogen to get a similar effect um right. and and then we we look at the fact that the the mechanism by which estrogen is kind of disposed of is by that cytochrome p450 enzyme which is the same enzyme that we use to eliminate things like drugs and toxins and right. biological you know biologically active and unwanted food substances and stuff like that and it seems that it that estrogen is almost regarded as kind of almost a potentially dangerous toxin to the body in large amounts and exactly would you agree with that yeah i really like so the first time we spoke Hmm. i was like i don't I was like, this guy actually knows a lot more than I suspected, which is good. I think I told you that. I was like, wow, you're actually really on top of your shit, which is good. And you made a really good point is the cytochrome P450 metabolizes um, part of estrone to the 16-hydroxy uh, estrone uh, pathway, right? But there's, there's cytochrome 1A1, which makes the 2-hydroxy estrone, and 1B1, which makes the 4-hydroxy uh, estrone, right? So the cytochrome P450 is also responsible. It makes the 16-alpha hydroxy. That's also problematic. And most people kind of just look at that simplistically. It's like, okay, I have estrone, and it's getting converted by the CP450 enzyme to 16-alpha hydroxy. Okay, that's bad. But you, you have to understand the kinetics, and I call this requisite variety, right, which is basically – that's a term um, – coined that I've heard from my one of my mentors, Dr. Peter Diadamo. And um, what it is, is that you have to assess the multiple different angles as to which you can influence an enzyme or a pathway at lower doses that has a more uh, exponential impact. Okay. What does that mean? Let's say you had normal, moderately average estrone levels and the enzyme that metabolized that is cytochrome P450. But exactly like you mentioned, now you're exposing yourself to BPA, right, and toxins in the environment. You're exposing yourself to, I mean, even um, like even certain herbs will impact cytochrome P450, like St. John's wort. Now you're taking other medications like antidepressants or antibiotics or um, anti-inflammatories, right? All of these things are going to influence the P450 enzyme because that's part of the phase one detoxification system. Mm-hmm. So. If you have, let's say, a thousand P450 enzymes, and just as an estimate, right, we have many more, and you have a thousand and one things that it has to metabolize, something's going to com- com- compromise, right? Something's going to have to be s- left behind. So when people tell me, well, you know, I was fine for five years, and then I just, you know, something just happened, and I feel worse now, I'm like, okay. Well, that's because your threshold, that enzyme has been overloaded, has been over um, stimulated, and now it just can't handle anything. So we need to reduce the allostatic load. We need to reduce the amount of things that are on it to allow the body to metabolize those things better, right? And that's exactly the point where you're saying is, you know, your estradiol levels could be average, right? I, the, the, the optimal range, I would say, is below 30 picograms per, per milliliter, for, for uh, men of estradiol. Now you could say, oh, well, my estradiol is at 30, right? And now I'm looking at your Dutch and I see that your metabolites are through the roof. Okay, that means these enzymes are overactivated. There's not a lot of raw material for it to try to get rid of. Why is it so uh, active? And that's when it comes into, that's when you have to consider what are the other things that are probably um, not being metabolized by this hormone, by this enzyme, it's, you really have to take a whole functional holistic approach of looking at it. And that's why a lot of your listeners, they, I would tell them, you know, if you are going to do TRT, you really need to look at your estrogen and your estrogen metabolites, especially if you're women, like a lot, I'm assuming a lot of women, actually it's funny after your podcast, I had a bunch of women reach out to me. They're like, we want to hear more about the women's stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, cool, let's talk about it. Yeah. When you're competing and you see, right, estrogen levels in women are, are pretty low. Mm. right and that is a stressor we see that in olympic athletes we see that in people who are high, highly stressed we see that in, in women who are very low body fat you need estrogen right mm. and estrogen has a beneficial effect in women but 
if you are competing and your estrogen levels are low, you need to make sure that whatever estrogen that you have is not going to the four hydroxy pathway because mm-hmm. that will cause a lot of damage to your DNA and it'll be put you at a significant risk in the future. Mm. Yeah. And this is where, you know, what we said, we don't, it doesn't appear like we need a lot of estrogen to, to get that full estrogen, estrogenization. <laughs> yeah. For men, for men. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, so it, it, it's like the, the regulation and metabolism of it is what is the thing we want to make sure is, is, is optimal. Um, yeah. And you can't test that in blood. Yeah. So this is where Dutch testing is the one. Um, but in terms of looking at this, you know, the, 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 the mechanism like, or the, the, doc, the detoxification pathways, let's say, cause, cause obviously once the different things are happening in, in these different parts of the, these different phases, right? So after phase one, the, these, you could almost say they're quite reactive um, yeah. compounds and then it's, but you could have someone that has, potentially like you know a pretty well functioning phase one and then the phase two is is mess you know not functioning as well as it should be and and, you know where these reactive um compounds then need to be detoxified again to get out of the body exactly soluble is that something you see quite often where yes who is the issue absolutely yeah man i'm really happy we're talking about this because i love talking about this stuff um so you have phase one enzymes. Everything that we spoke about so far, I didn't even mention phase two enzymes. So phase one is when you take the raw material and you try to make it more water soluble. You do a phase one, and those are usually the cytochrome enzymes. Yeah. And then phase two is when you try to um, bring these water soluble phase two metabolites or phase one metabolites and bring them into phase two metabolites so your body can get rid of them better. And things that are involved in that are um, sulfation enzymes. Mm. You are looking at glutathione. You're looking at superoxide dismutase. You're mm. looking at catalase. You're looking at um, glucuronide, mm. right? glucuronidation in the liver. Mm. So all of these things, I mean, um, a very common condition is called uh, Gilbert's syndrome, which is pretty common in men and that's when they have high bilirubin it's maybe at like 1.5 1.6 it's slightly elevated and that's because of a genetic defect in the enzyme that's responsible for getting rid of bilirubin right so they can't conjugate bilirubin very well and they have higher total bilirubin levels Hmm. so you test total and conjugate and unconjugated bilirubin and bilirubin just for the listeners do you want to clarify what that is yes sorry thanks for bringing me back to earth man (laughs) I, i get i go off track um, bilirubin is a metabolite or is, is a metabolite of heme oxidation. So it's when we break down red blood cells or we break down heme, it can be broken down into bilirubin or biliverdin, depends on where you are in the body. And um, it's a, it can be a toxic chemical that we, the body is trying to get rid of and it usually gets rid of it through uh, the bile and the liver. Right? So, but interestingly, there is some research showing that slightly elevated bilirubin levels have cardioprotective effects. Mm-hmm. So might be a good idea or might not be such a bad idea if your bilirubin levels are slightly elevated. Now, look, I'm not telling anybody to go out there and be like, no, I need to inhibit my bilirubin, you know, metabolism. Like, no, 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 I'm not telling you to do that. It's probably impossible. Don't do that. Um, but there is some research showing that it's actually not that harmful mm-hmm. in, in slightly elevated levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but that p- plays part in the phase two detoxification. And one thing that I mentioned was glutathione. So your body will take these metabolites, it'll take estrogen, it'll take testosterone, it'll take, so like the testosterone that we're testing in urine is, is a phase two metabolite. Mm. And then you have phase three, and phase three is when you get rid of those things and actually put them into the bile, you put them into the feces, and you put them into the urine, mm. okay? Which most people don't talk about very much, and it's actually just assumed that it works. But mm. phase two is sulfation. So we're talking about, um, MSM, we're talking about sulfur containing, uh, foods like cysteine, mm. uh, eggs, uh, uh and, uh, sulforaphanes from broccoli. You're talking about, uh, curcumin, which will, uh, induce NRF, right? So these are phase two, it will support phase two detoxification pathways. Mm. And then glu- glutathione. Mm. Glutathione is the body's third strongest antioxidant. It gets a very 
great reputation of being like the strongest antioxidant in the world. And yes, it is. It is very strong. But um, the two other stronger are catalase and superoxide dismutase, which you can't supplement. They're just not stable. Mm. Glutathione, you can. And actually, we were just talking about this. I just got a, a, a IV injection of glutathione by one of my best friends, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's like, you need a glutathione push. And I'm like, all right, boss, you say. I, I don't treat myself. I yeah. don't. I don't even try it. Um, but glutathione. Good friends to have. Oh, yeah. She's a gem, really. I've, I've, I've done a really good job at being blessed, being surrounded by brilliant people. Mm. Um, probably how I learned all this stuff. <laughs> um, so glutathione will help get rid of these phase. So you'll take, um, you take estrogen, you convert it to the two, four, and 16 hydroxy metabolites, and then you need to get rid of that after. Mm. And that's where you have, oh, I forgot the biggest one, methylation. Yeah, which, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, everybody's talking, about, everybody's talking about methylation. And it's funny because it's not so much MTHFR. Yeah. It's actually COMT, which is an enzyme that's responsible for phase two methylation. So, which is not involved, like B12 has very little influence on that, or folic acid has very little influence on that. Actually, B6 does, and magnesium. Mm. So, your body has to take those enzymes, uh, take those metabolites and get rid of them, because those metabolites, those, those phase one, the, between phase one and phase two, those are actually sometimes even more toxic than the starting material. I mean, look at it. It makes sense. Your 4-hydroxy is more toxic than estrogen alone. Mm. So your body has to do something to get rid of that. And that's when we use glutathione. We use all these other phase two metabolites to try to get rid of them. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do to improve that. And, you know, we can get as deep into that as you'd like. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah. you want me to go into it? Yeah, that's it. I was going to say that while, while we're on it, I think you, you mentioned the phase three. Um, and, and that's essentially the excretion process. Of, exactly. And, and when we're considering the glucuronidation, I mean, that, that must be one of the most common things where we get that, you know, people with some element of dysbiosis and their, you know, their, their gut bacteria producing excessive levels of beta-glucuronidase and uh -huh. they have maybe a lower transit or slow transit time because their digestion and, and like gastric motility or GI motility is poor. Increased gastric time. Increased gastric time. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, the, and I mean, is that, that can often be one of the, a, a very well, a very common issue that some of these other pathways are fine but they're just spend food stuff spending too long in the large intestine and getting deep you know uncoupled and reabsorbed right and i'm really happy you brought that up i was just talking about this with dr carrie jones the medical director of dutch and i was like why are not why are people not testing beta glucuronidase very much and she's like i don't I don't know because it, it makes a, it's a really important enzyme. And just to give your listeners a, a view of what beta-glucuronidase is, um, it is an enzyme made by the bacteria in your gut that will uncouple. It's a glucuronidase, beta-glucuronidase. Beta so basically it breaks off the glucuronidation that was already done by the liver. Oh, that's why is that important? Because phase three enzymes, Will, or phase two enzymes will glucuronidate these um, metabolites, puts them in the feces, tries to get them out. So now your estrogen and your testosterone, and not just those things, you're talking about other hormones, um, other uh, metabolites of hormones, even toxins, they're glucuronidated, right? That's how you detox, right? And I don't like that word detox because I know it gets a bad reputation. It's like, oh, we need to detox. Like your liver does enough detox. It's like, yeah. right it's like it's like okay we're not talking about alcohol detox here we're talking well actually alcohol is a toxin which can impact uh, detoxification um but estrogen and testosterone and all these metabolites and all these other toxins will be bound to glucuronidide uh, glucuronide which is via glucuronidation and it's important because it's a big molecule and the, it doesn't get reabsorbed so the body says okay this is a big molecule we're going to try to get rid of it but then there's bacteria in your gut that say, you know what, I'm going to make an enzyme that detaches that estrogen from the glucuronide, and I'm going to let you reabsorb that. Mm -hmm. um, that level, if that beta-glucuronidase is very high as a result of typically dysbiosis in the gut, you're going to reabsorb that estrogen. You're going to reabsorb that testosterone. And it's probably not going to be very effective because it's already metabolized, already used, but it will still bind 
mm. to receptors and it can still cause damage. So mm. the longer it sits in the gut, the, the more uh, probable is that it will be reabsorbed and be metabolized by, those, by, that, um, by the body. And that's why the microbiome has a huge impact on, on how healthy our gut is. Mm. I, I want to I just make one comment is, I'm, maybe I said this before, I think we know more about the Milky Way than we do about the microbiome in our gut. So true. It, like, I, it is so confusing, man. It is it, like, I don't know how much we know. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what we know, how, how influential it is. Like, I know beta-glucuronidase is a big deal. I know having a healthy microbiome is important. But how much is that an influence? And it's one of the hardest things to measure. Like, how do you measure the microbiome? Like, I don't buy these these like these microbiome tests. Like, I don't buy all of them. Some of them are more effective than others, but some of them just like I don't know. Okay, you tell me I have dysbiosis. What do I do? Mm. It's well, a really really tough field. How it changes so frequently. You know, people try and map out their microbiome. It's like it's not kind of a static thing, is it? It is not static at all. It can change within 24 hours. <laughs> and, they, and they've shown that where people have changed, you know, changed the diet and within something like three days, the, the, like the ratios in their gut have changed entirely. And you're like, absolutely. Well, well <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Fasting, fasting will change your microbiome. Mm. Intermittent fasting, find time restricted feeding. Mm. It will change your microbiome typically for the better because mm. it has the, it, Fasting will increase um, the bacteria. Uh, typically, it will increase something called acromantia. Yeah. Acromantia mucinophilia. Yeah. Right? Um, don't ask me how to spell it. A K K E R M A N S I A, I think. Nailed it. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. See, this is the thing. I can't remember people's names, but I remember all the other molecules. <laughs> like, it, it's horrible. It's because. I, I can memorize things. I think, I don't know if I have a photographic memory. I, I'm not sure, but I, I remember things when I see them. And I think that's why I'm so good with hormones because I can, I see it. And I'm like, okay, I remember where that goes. Right. Um, but acromantia, a probiotic or a bacteria in the gut will, um, it, it's called mucinophilia because it helps with the uh, degradation and metaboli- metabolization of the mucus lining in your gut. And if you don't have a healthy balance of that, that mucus will be less protected and it will expose the gut lining mm. to uh, more pathogens and more bacteria. So you need a healthy balance. Mm. Now, if it's too much, it's going to be a problem. And if it's too little, it'll be less effective. And one of the really good things that you can do to increase that is um, eat more resistant starches. Do you mm. actually, do you do that with, with clients? Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of, it's one of those things where I'll definitely gauge tolerance. Cause you tell some people, to increase the resistance starch and it just messes their gut up oh dude me too it does that to me yeah and it's so there's one where i'll always say like let's introduce it slowly and see what happens have you heard of the um the method of making resistant starch with rice no so you you can do this with potatoes too yeah. so you'll take it and you let it cool down right yes but then you have to reheat it yeah it always works with rice as well Yes. Oh, right, right. And, it, and, it, and a key point of that is to, um, for your listeners, just Google like um, resistant starch rice. Yeah. And you add coconut oil to when you're cooking it for the first time for the resistant for the rice. You cook it with coconut oil. You let it sit, right? Then you reheat it and much less of the starch is absorbed. Mm. So it's less, it's less digestible. You don't have the enzymes to break it down, but the bacteria in your gut do, and they have a field day and they go crazy and they love it, but expect gas and expect bloating if you overdo it. Mm. But it's not, it's, it, it reduces the calorie intake of, of rice. Mm. So for some people who want to have that, that'd be a good benefit. But, um, you know, speaking of the microbiome, um, one thing that people don't talk about is something called equal. Have you heard of that before? Mm. Remind me. Maybe I haven't. Equal is a metabolite. It's a estrogen-like um, hormone made by the bacteria in your gut. And it has a very high affinity 
for the estrogen receptors, but it does not set off the second messenger system. Mm. So it, so it, you've heard of phytoestrogens, right? Like flax mm. or soy, right? And they say, well, I, I hate to say this because there's so much controversy on it, but the consensus shows that soy is not going to cause cancer. Mm. I've it does seen, not cause I've breast cancer. I've read a few meta-analyses where they've showed it to actually be protective. Yes. Yeah. I think the issue is with the genetically modified soy, mm. right? Yeah. So that, because you're getting a lot of other crap in there, a lot of other pesticides and herbicides, right? But speaking to the point of, speaking to the point of equal, it will bind to the estrogen receptors, but it's, it will compete, it will outcompete other estrogens. Mm. And most of the equal is made in your gut. Mm. And what is equal made from is from diadocene and genistein, which is a direct um, component of soy. Mm. So that is why I think, and I don't know for sure, why soy is showing some protective benefits in women with breast cancer um, if and, and prostate cancer, mm. prostate cancer as well. And that's because of the equal, I think. Yeah. And that will be outcompeting some of these more potent metabolites. It outcompetes the 4-hydroxy. It'll outcompete uh, estradiol. Mm. Yeah. The problem is, is that you have to have the right microbiome. And I can't recall the, the exact metabolites that do that. Um, actually, a great program. Have you ever heard of Opus 23? No. Opus 23 is a program designed by Dr. Peter Diadamo, um, one of the most brilliant men that I've met. And in that program, it, it analyzes SNPs. It analyzes your um, either like 23andMe data or Ancestry data. Um, I know another lab now that uh, called DSL, they're going to be putting um, some data into that as well. And what it'll do is um, it analyzes your SNPs and gives you an idea of how these things are working, right? So that's where you can look at, you know, do you have SNPs in your glutathione peroxidase or your glutathione reductase or... Um, your glutathione S transferase, right? So can you make glutathione? It'll look at your cytochrome enzyme SNPs. Do you have maybe decreased function here? But another part of that program is called um, Utopia. And in that program, he has, this is probably the most extensive database of microbiome that I've seen. Mm. And he has every single microbiome that has been recorded in data, uh, every single bacteria, what it metabolizes, what it makes, um, how to increase it, how to decrease it based on the research. Mm. But the, the issue is, is that it's, it's based on the research, right? And that's the limiting factor here is that we are still trying to learn how much we actually know about it, but a really good program for you to look into. I, I would advise you to look into it. Yeah. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Mm. So I'm just thinking we, we, we've, delved into these uh, detoxification pathways. How are, what are some of the other ways we can kind of optimize this process and almost look to protect ourselves against some of these like potent metabolites? So obviously there's things in that will influence phase one, things that will influence phase two. Yeah. What are your go-tos there? So you don't want to try to increase phase one without increasing phase two. It's going to be a problem, right? You create that kind of bottleneck scenario, can't you? Exactly right. You create a bottleneck impact. So by trying to, you know, like, oh, I want to take DIM. Mm. And DIM, methane, which is a metabolite of indole-3-carbonyl. Mm. Um, and I, I usually advise people to take indole-3-carbonyl over, oh, excuse me, I advise people to take DIM, methane over indole-3-carbonyl mm. because the conversion or the, the absorption of indole-3-carbonyl, um, I3C, is reliant on certain enzymes. And if you don't have those enzymes in your gut, in your body, you can't make DIM. And just to give your listeners an idea, DIM is an inducer of cytochrome 1A1. Mm-hmm. So it'll push the estron metabolites towards the 2-hydroxy um, estron, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But you have to, if you're going to influence phase one, you need to keep in mind phase two because anything is go- everything is going to have some type of interaction. And this comes back to my idea of requisite variety is if you hit things from multiple, multiple you're not as smart as the body. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot outsmart the body. It will find ways and pathways that we have probably never even acknowledged or exist, that know exist 
it'll find ways to, to work around things. That's why a lot of chemotherapy agents, a lot of original HIV drugs, um, and a lot of anti-cancer drugs, the body will outsmart them. The cancer will outsmart them because it finds other ways to metabolize them. So my thought is, is well, we need to address all of them at lower levels to try to have more of a profound impact. Mm. So um, phase one impact, phase one, you can, um, that typically works very well. So DIM is a really good phase one inducer. Um, but phase two is more important. And so things that I would use to induce phase two enzymes would be um, eat broccoli. Yeah. Eat broccoli, but broccoli sprouts yeah. actually. There seem to be much, much greater levels of the of cofactors. Exactly right. It has higher levels of glucoraphanin, and which is will be converted into sul, uh, sulforaphane, which is a very strong potent antioxidant and uh, supports phase two detoxification. You need like it, it. I believe it's. I don't remember the exact number. I might say it's like ten times stronger than eating like a head of broccoli. Mm-hmm. So. And they're really easy to make, man. Like you get organic broccoli seeds online. If yeah. you just Google how to sprout broccoli seeds, yeah. easy. Like yeah. not, not hard at all and pretty cheap. And they spread, put them on salad. Don't cook them. Mm. Do not cook them. You'll destroy them. Yeah. So I like that. I like that. I like food first. Mm. Um, I, um, NAC, N-acetylcysteine, yeah. which is a, an, a, the cysteine is an essential amino acid for making glutathione. So I like to give any acetylcysteine, but then I tell people eat foods that have sulfur in them. If yep. it smells like a match sometimes, then it's probably a healthy food for you. So um, that's why a lot of these, these um, cruciferous vegetables, they have like that sulfur containing compound. That's why a lot of kids don't like them because they're, they're pungent. Um, broccoli, excuse me, not broccoli, garlic, mm. onions, like those have higher levels because why do you cry when you have when you cut onions it's because of all the vapors Mm. are coming out of the onion and those are things that are that are therapeutic so eat more onions eat more broccoli um broccoli sprouts garlic uh, eggs Mm. with the yolk right Mm. so that's where a lot of the cysteine uh, rely resides in in eggs so you want to have that as a whole those are things that i would do to induce phase two Mm. then you would add nac you can even use liposomal glutathione which Mm. Um, there's a few brands that I like, um, again, I have no affiliation with any of these. I like, um, I like Cetria, Cetria, the type of glutathione that has high absorption studied pretty well. I like a uh, Quicksilver. They have a liposomal glutathione, which is pretty good. So I look at those, those, um, liposomal glutathiones, um, MSM yeah. used in horses for joint health. Mm. But really high levels of that can be supportive for, for phase two detox. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of them that I'm missing. But, oh, milk thistle. Milk thistle is an essential nutrient. It helps induce glucuronidation, a great hormone, a great uh, herb to take. I take it every day, actually. Um, and it's cheap as well. It's not hard to get hold of. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. I take 600 milligrams a day, and I think it costs me like 15 bucks a month. It's really it's really nothing less than a dollar a day. And then, I mean, you'll, you'll be quite a good case study for this. Cause I know I've, uh, I've read some stuff and heard some stuff about milk thistle and it's, it can actually in some populations seem to reduce testosterone. Levels. But having seen your transformation photos just now, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to believe that, but there, I know there is some evidence that, so would you ever consider that in, in, in your application of milk thistle? I think I read one or two studies on that. The problem is, is how much of this is correlation Mm. and how much of this is a, yeah, we gave them milk thistle, their testosterone levels drop. Is this, is it true? But is it, is it true and true? Or is it true and unrelated? Mm. And I, I've never seen somebody tell me, man, my testosterone levels dropped because I gave them milk thistle. Now I might be wrong. Mm. but um this is we were talking about this earlier you know there's a lot of misinformation on the internet mm. right? and i just did a post on it i think it's like 70 or 77 percent of youtube videos on prostate cancer are just biased and misinformed yeah and you get people who read or, like read research they read a study and then they are an expert mm. and then i say well is there a clinical implication here and clinically, I just can't see how that can be so influential. Oh, In fact, every person that I 
speak to who is on um, on exogenous hormones, I would say we need to make sure your liver is working good. Might be a good idea just to start on milk thistle. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that I think is, is sad because there'll be people that you know read a couple of studies about milk thistle potentially reducing testosterone and they rule it out and they're like, oh, I'm never going to use that. Oh no, and it's like, dude, like there's two studies there and then there's hundreds of studies there right. and all this clinical experience that shows how good it is. So, um, yeah, probably put that. that that's that's people, man. Like everybody is they they freak out. So if people are scared of um, are scared of of milk thistle, there's a product called Live Fifty Two or also called Liver Care. Yeah. Um, you've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a ve- there's no milk thistle in there, mm. but it's a very it's an Ayurvedic herb. It's an Indian herb a combo that will actually improve has been shown to improve liver function and reduce liver enzymes. So, mm. if you're scared of milk thistle, then go that route. But you need to have healthy liver health. Mm. Mm. So I think on the so on the indole three carbonyl dim side of things like those glucosilinates, um, there's you know. I've seen um, uh, evidence or papers where they've shown that, you know, when you upregulate those guys, there's, there seems to, that's like a precursor. Um, that upregulation is, is, is a, a, a kind of a biochemical precursor for the um, two methoxyestrone, um, uh-huh. which, which obviously calls into question the fact that if you're going to, I mean, again, if you're going to support phase one, you want to support phase two, but more specifically, if you're going to support phase one with those guys, those glucosilinates, you'd want to make sure that methylation was optimal. Right. Cause yeah, absolutely right. I mean, two, two methoxyestrone is, um, am I right in thinking that that is one of the guys that is going to kind of provide quite a lot of protection against those, those more dangerous quote unquote estrogen metabolites. Um, yes, absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And those are the things that you have to look at that you want to look at. Um, you want to favor the two methoxy pathway and DIM will favor that pathway, but you also have to look about inhibiting the production of the four hydroxy. And mm. one of the great things that can do that are um, bioflavonoids. Mm. So bioflavonoids that you find in certain foods like, um, you know, citrus seafoods, but you can actually consume, you can su- supplement with bioflavonoids. Uh, found in grapefruit. Grapefruit inhibits cytochrome 1B1. So, and uh, I've heard ginseng as well. Oh, okay, cool. I didn't know about that one. But then, and, but then, I mean, suppose while we're on this, we, we'd want to also consider some of the guys that could upregulate that in terms of like lifestyle factors and yeah, certain foods like people cooking in methods that's going to produce a lot of um, PAHs, poly- polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Exactly right. Polycyclic amines. So, um, inflammation, and I hate like when people are like, oh, it's inflammation. Like, okay, which one? How? What are you looking at? And I look at polycyclic amines or a polycarbon, um, a polyamine hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. And those will induce the phase two, a phase one enzyme cytochrome 1B1, but it will also uh, have a detriment on the phase two because then it, then you have to, the body needs to keep up to try to get rid of those things as well. Yeah. So uh, charred meats, highly charred meats, um, especially those with like sugar on them. Like if you marinate them with, I don't know, like uh, honey and sugar, like brown sugar, that will increase the production of polycyclic amines. Mm. And when you consume those, they can be, they can cause a stressor and uh, stimulate the phase one uh, problematic enzymes like the 1B1. So a great way to combat that, and I use this all the time, is that um, I, I, I eat red meat, I eat chicken, I eat fish, right? Um, and in the summer, I like to barbecue, I like to grill. And a great way to prevent the synthesis or the production of these polycyclic amines is uh, several. Make sure your food is highly seasoned with herbs. Mm. Number one is rosemary. Rosemary is, has been shown to inhibit the synthesis of these, um, these hydrocarbons or these amines. And actually marinating your, beer, uh, your, your meat in beer or wine will also reduce the synthesis of these, um, these hydrocarbons. So, you know, let it sit, let your steak sit in, you know, red wine. 
for a few hours overnight yeah. with some rosemary and uh, turmeric and garlic, some basil, some oregano. You throw that on there. You season. It tastes yeah. awesome, and you're preventing that exposure. And this ex- this this works with all with all meats. Mm. So, um, but that doesn't mean you should be drinking wine, mm. right? Because that's not saying like, oh, well, it's the wine that's protective. No, there's some type of chemical reaction that's occurring with the meat and the alcohol and the wine. And remember, wine has high levels of um, of antioxidants as well, like resveratrol and uh, uh, polyphenols, right? So those are things, uh, polyphenols. I'm sorry, that will will be protective. So those are a few things that you need to pay in mind to. Mm. Amazing. I think that this is all kind of making me think as well. I've um, I've just had a couple of clients recently where we've we've been figuring out you know they they've shown signs where the ability to deal with you know they're, well they're reacting to foods that are quite high in histamine and and their their ability to clear estrogen seems to be compromised just on you know based on where they're holding fat on their body and and a lot of these other symptoms and I've I've we're we're in the process of testing for that to confirm it but they've also I've also found that they've got quite high exposure to mycotoxins in mold. Yeah. And um I mean is that an area because that that itself can have a massive impact on on the the allostatic load of the liver in terms of these phase 1 phase 2. And is that something you you've kind of looked into? Absolutely, absolutely. It it definitely is something that I I address and I look into. Yeah. The problem is is they're quite difficult to test. Yeah. So there is some testing uh, for chronic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, um, which can give you a little bit of an insight as to if there is mold exposure. Mm-hmm. The other things you could do is you could just test for um, the person if they're having some mold antigens in their body. Are they responding to aspergillus? Are they responding to um, candida? Um, other other uh, penicillin, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see if they're responding to these things. If the but the, but the best way to know this is doing a thorough intake and assessing their environmental exposures. Mm. Do you live in a, like New York City is old. Mm. New York yeah. City and the UK, I'm sure, like London and like these older, these are, I mean, you guys are older than we are actually. Um, uh, there's, these homes are older, right? And they're brick homes, but I'm sure there's been some type of water leak that got caught between somewhere and you have this exposure. Really good example. My father has been battling with um, COPD and emphysema for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. He smoked his whole life. Mm. And he's always had difficulty breathing. And I was, oh, I've always told him, I said, okay, we know why this happened because you smoked and you know, you're damaged your lungs because of the emphysema. But I said, dad, there is mold in your house. And I told my parents, I said, there's mold in your house. No, this, I said, this house is like 50 years old. There's mold in this house. Like go into the basement. You have a, a dehumidifier on and every night it's full. Mm. It's completely full. Like there's, look how much moisture it's pulling out. They had a leak in their bathroom and it fell down to the, to the basement. I'm like, where's that water going? We think it's just going to dry up. No, mold can grow very quickly within 14 to 24 hours. It'll grow very, very quickly. Black mold. Mm. even in showers mm. and one of their walls was starting to crumble in the basement it was like really getting really soft because somebody like bumped into it and i said you get a contractor they opened up the back of the wall and there was mold all behind the wall mm. on all the brick and in front of it was just sheetrock i said look see i told you it's here like i i, I could smell it and that impacted his ability to breathe Mm. right massively right but so you have people who have asthma they have allergies they have post nasal drip they're having chemical sensitivities like you can't wear perfume around them Mm. it is not the perfume it is not the um the the actual asthma or the response to a certain environmental toxin uh, environmental like like not dust it's that there's so much other shit that's causing a stress on the lungs and on the body and detoxification. Remember glutathione is very highly concentrated in the lungs, Mm. right? So it's so taxed that at some point your body is just like, I just give up and I can't get rid of this stuff. And that's when I say, you know what? We need to assess a little bit more for mold. We need to identify if there's something going on there. And if they can't find anything, I'm like, okay, 
we can try to treat it and let's see if you get better because sometimes mm. you just have to use a, an empirical approach. And um, that's what I love about naturopathic medicine. That's what I love about functional medicine and Chinese medicine is that sometimes a test really doesn't make anybody better. It's what you do that can help somebody get better. Mm. You know, and I think that's a really important point for your listeners to listen to. And even if these guys are on TRT or if they're on, they're competing, um, competitive, uh, doing competitive bodybuilding or just want to look better. It's about having better health. Mm. And that's what can, you know, mm. and you know this, like even the littlest thing mm -hmm. gives somebody an advantage. Right. Yeah. And, and that could be it. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, that was the, the, the approach I took with one of them because he he basically has been having these issues and, you know, he's got, it seems like chronic sinusitis, like all this constant runny nose. He, he reacts to every food under the sun, like comes out and rashes all the time for no reason. And you're, and I was like, I think there's a, I was like, did you, do you happen to have any damp in your house? And he was like, yeah, man. I was like, Bloody <laughs> I, was like what? I was like, why didn't you tell me? And, um, and then uh, I, we basically put in stuff to help. I, I was like, well, you know, while I'm looking into this more, let's put some stuff in to support your liver. And since we've done that, everything has just started improving week to week to week. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, it's it, real. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and the amount of people that would be dealing with that, but I think it comes into just highlights how important supporting this, these phase one, phase two liver detoxification pathways are because there's so many issues that people can come at you know, or people can be suffering with and not realize that all they've got to do is take care of their liver. Absolutely right. Which is right. Mm. And it's funny because, you know, it gets a bad reputation because there's a lot of people who will just say, oh, you know, you have mold and they just blame everything on mold. Oh, you have mold or you have this bacteria or you have this infection. And it's like, yes, perhaps that is the case, but there's, you're not, you don't just treat mold, you treat the person. Mm. And if you can treat the person, you'll get them better, mm. quicker, and they'll be more uh, robust and they'll be able to be more resistant in the future. Yeah. Like, you know, like chronic Lyme, mm. right? Uh, do you guys have crime? Uh, Lyme? Crime. <laughs> do you have mm. Lyme uh, in the UK? Lyme disease, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. So it's all over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you get chronic Lyme and you're like, okay, well, why is this lasting for so long? It's because the body is unable to overcome the stressors and the, 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 what we call molecular mimicry that this bacteria has done and damaged to the body. So why is that happening? Because it's, it's reacting to a bunch of other crap too. Mm. And it's really hard to treat because there's so much exposure, but there's certainly is something that we can, um, we can do to try to reduce that stress. And, and like, I mean, I know your listeners are not, may not be so interested in Lyme, but try competing and try getting better. Um, you know, with chronic Lyme disease, it's, yeah. it's taxing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few people I know, well, like I follow who have it and they're always posting about how hard it is. You know, how, how, how much it puts on their life. Yeah. Um, so I, I suppose we, we, just before we wrap up, I mean, this was, we were meant to talk about testosterone. <laughs> I know. Well, we kind of did. But yeah, I know. I was going to say, like, like, if we, let's assume, <clears throat> like, someone's liver, we've supported their liver, they're, they're detoxifying estrogen well, and, and now we're looking at ways to support their natural testosterone production. What, what are your, like, let's say, just top five methods to go through there, or even top three? Right. So I'm going to give you a few methods that I use that are not supplement related. And then I am going to give you some ideas of supplements that you can use. Number one is sleep. Always sleep. Yeah. Sleep over everything. Okay. Yeah. I've said yeah. that many, many times. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to push that to the ground. Um, making sure you're eating a low glycemic uh, diet. Right. And a lot of people say, well, oh, you know, like a hundred grams of carbs. That's, that's very little. No, that's fine. A hundred grams of carbs are okay. Depending on how uh, fit you are and how um, how stressed you are, because having a low carbohydrate diet can be a stressor, so it has to be uh, individualized. But typically, a high glycemic diet mm. will be problematic, and that's like sugar, like pineapple, bananas, mm. uh, regular potatoes, right? Mm. Um, not resistant starch potatoes, but regular potatoes. So I, those are a few things that I would avoid. A few other supplements that I really like: ashwagandha. 
is a great herb. I use KSM 66, which is a, um, a form of escalon that's been studied that has been shown to improve uh, androgen levels, testosterone levels in men and sperm motility in men. Um, there's another study that came out recently with another form of ashwagandha called Sensoril, mm. and that has been shown to improve endurance and actually uh, improve uh, uh, strength in men who are training with it compared to men who are not. Mm. So that that's another type of ashwagandha that you can look at. I like to look at DHEA. If mm. your DHEA-S levels are low, then you might want to supplement with DHEA in men. But again, that might be hard for you guys to get in the UK, but in the US, it's very easy to get. Mm. I'm looking into that because that's something since we spoke, I've been, I've been trying to find. Yeah, it might be hard, but in the, U, in the US, it's really easy. It's a pre-hormone, but it doesn't have the negative effects that other hormones have. It actually does not feed back to the, mm. to the uh, hormone feedback loop. So very and, effective. And testing for DHEs, so that's obviously the, the sulfated form of DHEs. Exactly, exactly. Also sometimes called DHEA-SO4. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's simply because it's just much more stable in blood, isn't it? It doesn't have quite as short a half-life. Right. Exactly right. It does not fluctuate very much. It's a storage form, yeah. which will give us an idea of where it is in the long run. So um, DHEA, ashwagandha, um, uh, some other herbs that I really like, um, uh, Eurocomia longifolia, also called Tonkat Ali, mm. uh, long jack. Mm. Um, when used properly, there is some research showing that it might be effective, but again, everything has to be individualized. I look at... Um, uh, a lot of people like nettle root. I can't say I'm a huge fan of nettle root uh, because it, it does. people do suspect that it does decrease SHBG levels, sex hormone binding globulin, but it would have to be at very high levels. And I haven't, um, I've seen it work in combination with other things, but I haven't seen it work um, solely by itself. Mm -hmm. So that's a few other, that's one of the herbs that I like to use. A few other ones would be like Asian ginseng, mm -hmm. uh, Panax ginseng, uh, different from um, a luthro, which is a Siberian ginseng, and different from American ginseng. This is Siberia. Uh, this is Panax or Korean ginseng. Um, may not necessarily increase testosterone levels, but will increase um, libido. Can increase drive. Can increase energy. So those are a few things that I like to look at. And then you have to make sure your adrenal glands are functioning properly because the adrenal glands are uh, essential for making uh, androgens and cortisol. So I like to look at adrenal glandulars. I like to look at ashwagandha. I like to look at rhodiola. I like to look at uh, eleuthero or Siberian ginseng, uh, L-theanine. These are all herbs or supplements that you have to look at in unison to see if these things can improve the adrenals. Because if your cortisol levels are going to be overstimulated, it's going to have a detriment on your testosterone production. And Or if your cortisol levels are too low, it's not going to give you enough energy and drive to actually uh, to your because cortisol has an impact on the body, right? It has a benefit and a detrimental effect. So if it's very low, you're not going to feel energized, you're going to feel fatigued, you're going to feel overworked, and that can have a downside effect on your testosterone. So I can't say, like, you know, uh, giving somebody adrenal glandulars or adrenal support will improve their testosterone levels, but oftentimes it does improve their sense of well-being, which will eventually improve their testosterone levels. And then a thyroid hormone. So a lot of the things that I like to do to address thyroid hormone, besides just giving somebody thyroid hormone, mm. I'm not a fan of iodine. And I don't know if you use it or if a lot of your listeners use it because I have seen many cases of uh, iodine-induced thyrotoxicosis, which is basically people will take high low. I, I've had a patient take up 20 grams of iodine. I was like, that is an immense amount, right? <laughs> like 400, I'm okay with. 400 micrograms. Yeah. This was 20 grams, 20,000 micrograms. Purely in supplemental form, or they just nailing as much seafood? Nope. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is all in a liquid. And I was like, no, you can't do that. And the person ended up getting hyperthyroidism. And was that, was that um, suggested to them by a practitioner? Was that just them going, oh, iodine's good for thyroid? I'm gonna... It was suggested to them by somebody who considered themselves a practitioner. Uh... <laughs> improperly trained online degree no, no clinical training so yes was recommended by a alleged practitioner yeah, um, but, yeah drive me nuts uh, but ashwagandha has been shown to be effective for hyper, subclinical hypothyroidism so i'd like to use ashwagandha yeah. um, 
I like to give people kelp or uh, something called fucus, which is a seaweed mm. that has uh, all the minerals necessary for thyroid function, like selenium and iodine at, thera- at normal therapeutic levels. Um, and then you have to look at zinc. Zinc is an essential cofactor. Vitamin A and iron are all essential for these uh, for thyroid hormone to work. The, the thyroid uh, hormone receptor in the nucleus is right next to the retinoic acid receptor, the vitamin A receptor. And if there's a, um, they work as a heterodimer. They work together. And if vitamin A is insufficient, they don't. It doesn't function as well. So there's not enough sensitivity. So we see it in thyroid receptor hormone sensitivity or insensitivity or resistance. So uh, vitamin A would actually be another, um, not, not beta carotene, vitamin A would actually be another nutrient that I would use. Um, but again, this is all has to be taken within the context of the whole person. Mm. And these are all things as well that I'm sure, obviously you'd always want to work with a practitioner to, to ensure it, but people that aren't necessarily suffering from low testosterone could use all this stuff to just make sure things stay in a pretty optimal place. Absolutely right. I am in the business of prevention. Yeah. And it's much easier to maintain than it is to reverse. Mm. So let's maintain if we can. Yeah. I think the cool thing, like obviously Ralph mentioned sleep is is number one and like that doesn't, we we won't go and sleep because that's a huge topic, but the fact that it's number one, everyone listens to that but um absolutely a lot of those nutrients you said especially things like ashwagandha will um will have a carryover to helping sleep as well so that's not a bad one yeah ashwagandha the latin name is withania somnifera somnifera right somnifera somnolence Mm. that's it's a it's a sedating uh, or can be a relaxing herb i take mine in the morning Mm. but um fine if you take it at nighttime too I think I think that the I'm always a fan of when it comes to adaptogens. Um, I'm always a fan of putting them further further forwards in the day. So rather than having them all at the end of the day, kind of putting them in, especially if you're implementing them from an adrenal perspective, just to make sure that there's the support there. Absolutely right. right. I agree. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean that's. Um, I think we'll probably wrap it up because that was a big episode. Um, did we really cover everything? I don't, I don't think we did, but I know you're pressed for time, so I won't. Um, I won't drag it out. But the, uh, I, I think. I mean, we're, we're probably going to have to get you back on for part three. <laughs> hey man, it seems like I'm going to be a regular on this thing. No, 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 that's cool. Well, that's what we, we me and Caleb, have always spoken about that we want kind of regular guests on here that that really know their shit and kind of. Um, you know, have a passion for putting out good information because that's why that's why we started it. Um, well, at some point, I'm not going to have anything to talk about. I don't. I don't know if I know that much. Yeah, everything you know, put on the podcast. Oh God, I I, I probably can write a few books on this stuff, but yeah, I good. definitely. I'll give you everything I got, man. That's <laughs> awesome. But um, no, it was an honor to have you back, and um, and I'm sure everyone is going to thoroughly enjoy this one. So. Uh, I mean, what what have you got planned at the moment? What's on the cards for your business and everything like that? You know, I'm still just, you know, working as a medical consultant. I do a lot of research. I'm not taking on patients. I just have so much to handle right now with the um, consulting aspect, which mm-hmm. is a blessing. I, mm-hmm. I, I do genuinely love what I do. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask me for help and I just have to defer them to other people. But you know, uh, doing a lot of, uh, working on some like speaking engagements. I just want to like get that information out to more people. Um, I have a few things coming up in 2019. So once those are active, you guys will see that on my page. Just, I just finished November. Yeah. So boy, was that a task. That's your allostatic load half. Oh my God. It's, I am happy that it's done. I am happy. I love it, but it's just, it's taxing to put up that. I, now I know what it feels like when people like write books and stuff. It's like, boy, yeah. this is work. But the, the difference with you is that you've got the time pressure. <laughs> you had you had to get one out every day. Oh yeah, it was tough. Like I was putting them at first. I was getting them out like every morning. I'm like, oh well, this is gonna wait till five o'clock, and then like eight o'clock. I'm like, no, I need to get it out every day. But you be persistent with those things. Yeah, yeah. and um, they're awesome. I mean, there's some really really good information for those that haven't 
looked into that and kind of looking into the the male health side of things there's 29 posts on ralph's instagram that are worth reading all for november yeah 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 man so that that's pretty much it just trying to put out good information for people mm, that's what it's about admirable and um yeah i mean it's it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to connect with someone like yourself so thank you again for coming on my pleasure man this was really fun i love talking about this stuff and i'm yeah. i'm really impressed by how much you guys know it's it's um it's relieving because there are some people who I look at online. I'm like, Oh, you're an idiot. (laughs) And then, um, but I don't tell them I try, I'd be nice. I'm nice about it. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Mm, Right. Um, but you guys, I really love everything that you guys are putting out too. And I, I, uh, I support your work. Yeah. That means a lot. That means a lot. Um, yeah, that's great. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it there and we'll hopefully get you back on soon in the future. So, All right, man. Thanks so much.